This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146, Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association, respectful, beneficial, empowering. Hello and welcome once more to the program. Let's just refresh our minds with a quick run-through of the eight verses again. They read, Determined to obtain the greatest possible benefit for all sentient beings who are more precious than a wish-fulfilling jewel, I shall hold them most dear at all times. When in the company of others, I shall always consider myself the lowest of all, and from the depths of my heart hold others dear and supreme. Vigilant, the moment a delusion appears in my mind endangering myself and others, I shall confront and avert it without delay. Whenever I see beings that are wicked in nature and overwhelmed by violent negative actions and suffering, I shall hold such rare ones dear, as if I had found a precious treasure. When, out of envy, others mistreat me with abuse, insults or the like, I shall accept defeat and offer the victory to others. When somebody whom I have benefited and in whom I have had great hopes gives me terrible harm, I shall regard that person as my holy guru. In short, both directly and indirectly, I offer every happiness and benefit to all my mothers. I shall secretly take upon myself all their harmful actions and suffering. Undefiled by the stains of the superstitions of the eight worldly concerns, may I, by perceiving all phenomena as illusory, be released from the bondage of attachment. Those are the eight verses of mind training by Langri Tampa, and I guess you can see how counterintuitive they are. Whenever I see beings that are wicked in nature and overwhelmed by violent negative actions and suffering, I shall hold such rare ones dear as if I'd found a precious treasure. Yes, well, it would be a touch difficult seeing a violent gang member who has recently bashed and killed someone as a precious treasure. But as we've explained, this whole text is a training on developing bodhicitta and how to transform our immediate conditioned and mostly shallow responses into a much deeper understanding and compassion. About this, but a bit off our main point, you may remember a recent news item about a photo on Amgur and Reddit of a man proposing to his fiancée at another couple's wedding. He's on one knee, offering a ring to his lady, while the recently married couple sit at a table in the background looking on. The photo went viral, with many commentators blasting the man for his tastelessness, especially as the bride, sitting at the table behind them, appeared to be grimacing. The bride is doing a really good job of hiding her murder, was one comment among many. Except it wasn't like that at all. It turned out that the man proposing was the brother-in-law of the bride, and his lady was her sister. The idea of proposing at the wedding came from the bride herself, and her grimace was an attempt not to cry. How many situations do we judge on shallow appearances and very small understanding, and consequently make stupid or dangerous mistakes? 
Now, I'm not saying that any of the outraged comments on the photo were dangerous, but when the facts came out, they were a bit silly. So the text we are going through is encouraging us to stop and train ourselves to look much deeper before we commit ourselves to some action, and also to base our actions on the greatest compassion, and not, as so much on the internet is, on an ignorant, judgmental mind. But now, before we get back to the text, let's, as usual, set our motivation for participating in the program today. Having spoken about bodhicitta, let's make that our motivation. We are taking part today so that we can become enlightened and help all other beings become enlightened as well. Because the object, that is all other beings in existence, is so vast, the motivation also becomes vast, and the program can then be a cause for great benefit. If we only participate to pass the time, or to gain some reputation or something else in this life, I think there will be hardly any benefit at all. So let's take a moment to think about our motivation and make it as vast as possible. Thank you. Last week, we were particularly concentrating on what is meant by the phrase by perceiving all phenomena as illusory in Lamrutampa's final verse. All the explanation revolved around the way we see things as having true independent existence, when in fact they only exist as a collection of other factors, like causes, conditions and parts, and the mind that puts a label on them. They are said to be illusory because they appear to us in one way, but actually exist in another. Like an illusion appears to be real, but it's actually not. Think of a magician cutting a lady in a box in half. Of course, if we sit watching with uncritical passive mind, we could be taken in and really believe that a woman is being sawn in half on stage. However, when we know how the trick works, we will, we will not be taken in, and not for a moment will we believe in the apparently murderous act. Now, His Holiness takes this a lot further in explaining how things exist, from the point of view of the Prasangika Majjhimika school of Buddhism. Remember, a number of philosophical schools sprang up after the Buddha died, as followers tried to explain his teachings based on their own experience. The Tibetan tradition regards Prasangika Majjhimika, which relies on the teachings and explanations of Indian masters like Nagarjuna and Chandrakirti, as the highest school. And it's on this basis that His Holiness gives his commentary. You may or may not remember the quote from His Holiness last week. It goes like this. Upon what do things depend for their existence? They depend upon the base that is labelled and the thought that labels. If they could be found when searched for, they should exist by their own nature. And thus the Majamaka scriptures, which say that things do not exist by their own nature, would be wrong. However, you can't find things when you search for them. What you do find is something that exists under the control of other factors, which is therefore said to exist merely in name. The word merely here indicates that something is being cut off. But what is being cut off is not the name, nor is it that which has a meaning and is the object of a valid mind. We're not saying that there's no meaning to things other than their names, or that the meaning that is not the name is not the object of a valid mind. What it cuts off is that it exists by something other than the power of name. And that is where our time ran out last week. 
but His Holiness has more to say, and that make it, may make it a little more clear. He continues, Things exist merely by the power of name, but they have meaning, and that meaning is the object of a valid mind. But the nature of things is that they exist simply by the power of name. There is no other alternative, only the force of name. That does not mean that besides the name there is nothing. There is the thing, there is a meaning, and there is a name. What is the meaning? The meaning also exists merely in a name. You might then ask about the mind itself. Does it really exist, or is it also illusory? His Holiness explains. It's the same thing. According to the Prasangika Majamaka, the highest, most precise view, it is the same thing whether it's an external object or the internal consciousness that apprehends it. Both exist by the power of name. Neither is truly existent. Thought itself exists merely in name. So do emptiness, Buddha, good, bad and indifferent. Everything exists solely by the power of name. He then goes on to explain how difficult it is to understand what is meant by solely by the power of name. He says, when we say name only, there is no way to understand what it means, other than that it cuts off meanings that are not name only. If you take a real person and a phantom person, for example, both are the same in that they exist merely by name, but there is a difference between them. Whatever exists or does not exist is merely labelled, but in name, some things exist and others do not. So if you try to find the substantial existence of both the real person and the phantom person by analysis, you would not be able to find it at all. The real person and the phantom person are both merely labelled, but the real person actually exists because the basis of imputation, that's the aggregates, or the collection of body and mind, that a labelled person exists. The phantom person does not exist because there are no aggregates, no consciousness for the person to depend on. In a dream, the appearance of a person serves as a basis of imputation, but it's not a proper base as there are no aggregates. Now, if all this is giving you a headache, Geshe Jambachek Tekchok in his book Insight into Emptiness may be able to shed more light on what His Holiness is saying. Geshe Tekchok calls dependence on imputation by name and concept the subtlest type of dependence, and says dependence on imputation means that things exist by being merely dependent on name and concept. Names are imputed or designated in dependence on something that is able to fulfill a unique or specific function that corresponds to the meaning of the name. For example, we designate the name stove on something that can be used to heat food. We use the word fork to indicate a utensil that can be used to put food in our mouths. There needs to be a valid mind imputing a name onto a valid basis, says Geshe Tetchok. If we were to call a box of tissues a microphone, it wouldn't work, because the tissues cannot perform the function of a microphone. Thus, it is not a valid basis for the name microphone. But when a valid mind imputes a name independence on a valid basis of designation, one that is able to perform the particular function that accords with the name designated independence on it, the object becomes known by that name. Something exists as that object only when we give it a name. Before the name has been given, we can't say that that particular object exists. 
But once that object with four legs and a flat top is labeled table, then table exists, and we can say, please put this on the table, or let's move the table over there. Consider how people are given their names. Before someone's parents decide to give him the name Tashi, that baby is not Tashi. Before his parents name him, if someone said, Tashi is hungry, no one would know who he was referring to. But once his parents call him Tashi, from then onwards, throughout his life, when someone says Tashi, he will respond, and other people will know who Tashi is. He functions as Tashi only after being given the name Tashi. Meanwhile, someone who has not been given the name cannot function as Tashi. If someone says, Tashi, come here, but the people nearby are not named Tashi, no one will respond. Geshe Tetrak then goes on, saying things are mere name or mere imputation in no way annihilates objects. It just negates inherent existence, existence from its own side. And this is the most subtle level of dependent arising, and it applies to all phenomena, conditioned and unconditioned phenomena alike. Everything exists as mere imputation from the side of the conceptual mind, by the mind imputing the name on the basis, without there being the slightest existence from the side of the object. Now remember I said that this understanding of how things exist is particular to the Prasangika Majamika school. Geshe Tekchok compares this to the Svraktantika Madhyamika school, which holds that things can't exist merely by imputation. They exist by imputation and something existent from the side of the object as well. If something didn't have some existence from its own side, then anything could be labeled anything according to this school. He says, while both Madhyamika schools say that all existence are mere imputation, for Svartantrikas, the word mere eliminates the object existing only from its own side, while depending on the mind at all. For while the prasangikas, mere eliminates all existence from its own side. From one viewpoint, we could say the svatantrikas accept that phenomena are imputed, because the conceptual mind imputes names on objects. But they do not accept things being mere imputation from the side of the conceptual mind, as the prasangikas do. Now I include the small excerpt about the Svatantrika Majamika just to demonstrate that not all the Buddhist schools follow the line of reasoning of the Prasangika Majamika, although that is regarded as the highest school by Tibetan Buddhists. The views of the different schools can be quite hard to follow, especially as a specific terminology somewhat foreign to everyday English is used. But now, just for variation and another taste of the intertwining of illusoriness of all phenomena, and the bondage of attachment. Here is a Zen-like tale of a prince and a teacher that I found on the website Meaningful Stories. It goes like this. One day, a teacher was called to the king's court to give tuition to the prince. The teacher soon found that the prince was eager to learn and was open to being taught and hearing wise lessons, but that he was also very attached to the material things in life and had great difficulty in seeing through the illusion of existence. One day, when the teacher and his student were in the castle's library, the teacher gave the prince a bowl and said, I have a great thirst, prince. Would you please get some water from the river in this bowl? The prince took the bowl and set off for the river. When he stooped to fill the bowl with water, he saw a pretty young woman, who just like him was about to scoop water from the river. 
The woman was so dazzlingly beautiful that the prince fell in love instantly. The prince walked her home and was introduced to her parents, and it wasn't long before they celebrated their wedding. The prince and his wife bought some land, built a house, had a son and a daughter, and led a happy life for many years. But one day the soldiers of a hostile king invaded the land. A terrible war raged, and the prince's son was killed. The parents were heartbroken. The hostile troops were eventually ousted, but they had wreaked great destruction on the land. A short while after the war ended, a terrible storm occurred. Rivers burst their banks, and floods caused enormous damage, and the water kept rising. The prince, his wife, and their daughter had to climb on the top of the roof to escape death from drowning, but the daughter slipped and was killed in the waves. The parents' grief was almost unbearable. The water level had only just started dropping again when the country was hit by illness and many, many people died. The prince's wife also fell ill. She was in bed with a high fever, and one day she asked her husband to get her some water from the river because she was so thirsty. The prince took a bowl and set off for the river. Then the prince suddenly heard a voice that asked, Where's my water? The prince looked up and saw the teacher standing in front of him. And then he understood what the teacher meant by illusion. It is by realizing that everything is illusory and transitory that we can free ourselves from bondage of attachment. The prince came to understand that all the happiness and all the sorrow he experienced was just like a dream. And so it is with all the dramas in our lives. If we could look deeply enough, we would see that they are all like fleeting illusions. Then what is there to cling to? What is there to get so worked up about? Dr. Alex Burson, in his commentary on the eight verses, ties emptiness and illusion into the eight worldly dharmas, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and disgrace, praise and blame, and quotes extensively from Shantideva's Guide to a Bodhisattva's Way of Life and on how to overcome these. He first turns to chapter 8 on mental stability, verses 3 and 4. Worldly concerns are not discarded because of sticky attachments and thirst for material gain and the like. Therefore, to set these things aside, someone with knowledge would discern like this. An exceptionally perceptive state of mind, joined into a stilled and settled state, completely destroys the disturbing emotions. Having understood this, first I shall seek a still and settled mind, and that's achieved through delight in detachment from worldly concerns. So if we want to wean ourselves off concerns for worldly wealth and so on, driven by our attachments, and eliminate all our disturbing emotions, we first have to develop calm abiding, that state where we can put our mind on anything and it stays there for as long as we like without any physical or mental discomfort. That is what he means by a stilled and settled state. Then once having developed that, we analyze the nature of reality until we come to an experiential understanding of emptiness. That is the exceptionally perceptive state of mind or vipassana which we strengthen by repeated meditation until it becomes irreversible. We can't develop calm abiding thinking about worldly activities like partners, gathering wealth, seeking out entertainments like movies, music and so on, all the things that ordinary people chase after. We have to go into solitude and concentrate solely on developing this undistracted, at-ease mind. 
And that is what is meant by having understood this, first I shall seek a stilled and settled mind, and that's achieved through delight in detachment from worldly concerns. Dr. Burson also quotes verse 20 and 21 of the same chapter. There have been many people with material wealth, and there have been many with fame and reputation, but it's never been known that they've passed on to some place where their amassed wealth and fame have gone with them. If there are others who belittle me, what pleasure is there when I am being praised? And if there are others who praise me, what displeasure is there when I am being belittled? We can be persuaded that worldly concerns are not worth bothering about by remembering that no matter how much wealth, fame, reputation and so on we accumulate, none of it will go with us when we die. We have to leave it all behind. Well, have you heard of anybody taking a single coin with them into their next life? I know that some cultures, like the Egyptians, buried their kings with all kinds of wealth to help them in the coming life. But it appears that that wealth only really benefited the grave robbers that came much later. When we die, we go completely naked and alone. And then it's also a fact that it's impossible to be wholly liked or wholly disliked in this life. Some people will like us, others won't. Even the Buddha himself experienced this. So why make a fuss when getting praised or become depressed when criticized? In the end, it will all fade into obscurity like an illusion. When we have calm abiding and special insight, this all becomes abundantly clear and we are no longer troubled by any of the eight worldly concerns. Dr. Burson backs this up by quoting chapter 6, verse 57 to verse 59 of Shantideva's text. Someone who wakes up after having experienced a hundred years of happiness in a dream, and another who wakes up after having experienced just a moment of happiness. Once they've awakened, that happiness doesn't return, after all, to either of the two. Similarly, it comes down to exactly the same for someone who's lived for long and someone who's lived for a short while. Though I may have obtained great material gain, and even have enjoyed many pleasures for long, I shall still go forth empty-handed and naked, like having been robbed by a thief. Two people are asleep. One dreams of a hundred years of happiness, while the other dreams of just a short moment of happiness. Once they are awake, it's all just the same. And as our life is itself dreamlike, a long life is not that much different from a short one. No matter how many pleasures and material resources I have called my own in this life, when I die, they will all disappear and I'll have to go alone without even a tiny souvenir of that wealth. There's no essence to any of this. Again, it is all just illusory. Dr. Burson also quotes verses 90 to 93, dealing with the uselessness of chasing the phantoms of praise and fame. Praise and fame, these shows of respect, won't bring positive force, won't bring a long life, won't bring bodily strength, nor freedom from sickness. They won't bring physical pleasure either. If I were aware of what's in my self-interest, what in my self-interest would there be in them? If just mental happiness were what I wanted, I should devote myself to gambling and so on, and to alcohol too. For the sake of fame, people would give away wealth, or would get themselves killed. But what use is there with words of fame? Once they've died, to whom will they bring pleasure? At the collapse of his sandcastle, a child wails in despair. Similarly, 
At the loss of praise and fame, my mind shows the face of a child. What actually do praise and fame bring? As Shantideva points out, in reality they count for nothing. They can't guarantee positive things happening or a long life. They can't strengthen our body or prevent sickness. Nor do they bring physical pleasures. And if we say they bring mental happiness, Shantideva points out that in terms of effort expended, it's much easier to go gambling and drinking than to chase after reputation. He acknowledges that people do the weirdest, weirdest things for fame, like giving away all their wealth or waging war for the sake of glory. But once they're dead, fame is of no benefit at all. And yet, when we don't get fame and recognition, we behave like a child whose precious sandcastle is swept away by the waves of the sea. Our worldly concerns are just like our sandcastle, which Dr. Burson points out we make into a big thing and get all exci excited about. Then when it all collapses, we get terribly upset. The point is not to make a big deal out of either things going well or things not going well, to see it like a dream or like an illusion, he says. For that, we can do the meditation on emptiness which is the deepest and best way to cope with all life can throw at us. When we don't analyze, life appears awfully solid and real and dramatic. But when we do analyze the nature of reality, we cannot find anything to latch on to. Dr. Burson quotes chapter 9, verses 151 and 152, in which Shantideva analyzes these eight worldly phenomena and finds them wanting. With all phenomena devoid in that way, what is there that would have been received? What is there that would have been taken away? Who is there who will become shown respect or contempt, and by whom? What is there from which there is pleasure or pain? What is there to be disliked or liked? What craving is there that searching for an actual findable nature? And what is it for that there is craving? When we meditate on the nature of reality, and see that everything is without inherent independent existence. All that stuff we took so seriously before loses its solidity and becomes like an illusion. We cannot find the person that was shown the respect or contempt, nor can we find the person who shows the respect or contempt. We cannot find anything that gives pleasure or pain, nor anything that can be liked or disliked. Even craving itself is illusory. Seeing all this, we can break free from the bondage of attachment and become liberated. Dr. Burson says this discussion also ties in very well with the earlier part of the eight verses, where we are encouraged to accept the loss in ourselves and give the victory to others. In order to practice Tonglen, in order to practice taking on the loss ourselves and giving the victory to others, it's very important to understand that these negative things that we are taking on and the positive things that we're given, all are like an illusion, he says, emphasizing that the understanding of emptiness is very important for all the practices Langritamba describes in the eight verses of mind training. As Shantideva says in the introduction to the wisdom chapter of A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, all Buddhist teachings are for the purpose of wisdom. And with that, we say farewell to the eight verses of mind training by Langritampa. Next week, we will start another text, Mind Training Like the Rays of the Sun, which combines mind training with a graduated path to enlightenment. 
Thanks for joining us today, and I hope you'll do so again next week. Please dedicate any positive potential from the program to the gaining of enlightenment for the sake of all beings. Thank you, and goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out more.